As we consider the second petition of the Lord's Prayer tonight in this summer series, we're going to begin by considering the words of Mark chapter 1, and then we'll reacquaint ourselves with Matthew chapter 6. So first to Mark. And this is the introduction of uh, the ministry of of Jesus according to this gospel. Mark 1 and verse 14 and, and then 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What is the kingdom of God? Theologically, that is a a very big question. A question that many people much smarter than myself have spent years writing dissertations about. What is the kingdom of God? Well, we want to begin by by trying to answer that in some fashion this evening. And then we're going to ask, secondly... Uh, What does it mean then to pray that that kingdom would come? So really just two questions tonight. What is the kingdom of God and what does it mean to pray that it would come? The kingdom of God could be spoken of, and indeed it is spoken of, in all sorts of ways. But in the most fundamental and basic sense, the kingdom of God is everything. You really can't get much more basic than that, can you? It's everything. It's, it's all things. That's what we heard in Psalm 103 in our call to worship. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so when we speak of the kingdom of God in, in this way, the idea simply is that there isn't any corner of the world, any section of the world that God doesn't own, that God doesn't control, that God does not rule through the sun that he has set on his holy hill on the heavenly Mount Zion. In his speech opening up the Free University in Amsterdam in 1880, Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. God owns everything. It all belongs to him. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But it's clear that The kingdom in that sense is not the kingdom that we're praying of in this petition. There's no need, there's no reason to pray that that kingdom would come because it's already here and it's everywhere. It's always been. The moment that anything came into existence, it did so at the behest of God as the creator king. When we recite the Lord's Prayer in worship, we conclude with the famous doxology that says, For thine is the 
kingdom. That, that's the kingdom in this all-encompassing sense. But when we pray, your kingdom come, we're talking about the kingdom in a different way. We're talking about something more specific. And it's something closer to what Jesus was preaching that we read of in Mark chapter 1, when he says that the, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe the gospel. And right before that, in verse 14, it said that Jesus was preaching the gospel, saying the kingdom is at hand. So there's something about this kingdom that is, is inherently connected with, tied to, can't be separated from the gospel itself, from the work of redemption. It's a phrase that Jesus would use quite often in his ministry, Matthew 12, 28. He tells the Pharisees that the fact that he wields the power of God to cast out demons is proof That, quote, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's that realm uh, which requires the the love of a child and the submission of a child to gain entrance. Mark 10. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. And at a prolonged point of teaching, um, Luke summarizes what Jesus is doing simply by saying this, that Jesus spoke to the crowds about the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9, 11. It's what he was all about. And so the kingdom of God is, is connected to the work of Jesus as a savior, as a redeemer specifically. It can be understood in terms of redemption, of salvation, of grace. So there's this kingdom of God that we all belong to by nature. Just the fact that we're in the world means we, we are part of God's kingdom. And there's a kingdom of God that we get into just by being born. But then there's another kingdom that the only way we can get into is by being born again. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that we're talking about In this second petition, that's the kingdom that we're praying about. The kingdom that has as its king, not just God in a sort of um, big picture sense, in abstract sense, as God as the, by his essence, the all-powerful one. But that the, the kingdom that has as its king in a very specific sense, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over that kingdom by his gospel grace. It's about the king who arrived not in splendor, but in a manger, whose throne was a cross and whose crown was made of thorns. And the wonders of this kingdom had been long foretold and promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. But it's not until Jesus arrives on the scene that it can truly be said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. Because Jesus, he's the center of that kingdom. He is its king. Steve Baugh, in his book on the subject, describes the kingdom of God as the center of all things. He goes on to state that it's the central reality of the scriptures and therefore of all creation. Everything in all creation is related to the kingdom of God. It's, in, it's um, integral to all of our theology and all of our reading of the scripture. But then he goes on to give a very brief and I think helpful definition of the kingdom of God, simply calling it the new creation. Okay, 
I can wrap my mind around that. The kingdom of God is the new creation. And, and that also helps us to see uh, that the kingdom of God that we're praying for is what will soon become an inescapable reality. One day all things will be made new. The kingdom will be, will be entirely here. It's what we long for when we ask that Jesus would come quickly. That all death and darkness would be dispelled, would be wiped away. That we would live forevermore with with our Lord and Savior in, in perfect communion and fellowship. But we don't have to just wait for it. There's a sense in which it's already here. Perhaps you've heard this distinction bandied about by theologians. The already not yet distinction. Something that in one sense we can say, yes, it really is here. But in another sense, no, it hasn't yet arrived in uh, I can't think of any better, better illustration than the t-shirt that Carrie found um, when she was pregnant with Evie, or Jacob, Evie. And it says right there over her belly, already, not yet. Well, that baby's there. That baby's alive. But we haven't yet experienced all the blessings, the blessings of receiving that child. Well, the same thing's true of, of the kingdom that hasn't already, not yet uh, there are already not yet components. So how is it already here? Well, it's already here in the heart of believers. Those who have already been conquered by the grace of Jesus Christ and who by faith bow the knee before him. The kingdom has begun in us. The new creation starts now in us. We don't have to wait until the consummation of all things to experience the new creation. The fact that we die to sin and we are brought alive to righteousness, that's new creation at work. In your own life, what an amazing thing. And more than just being experienced in the heart of individual believers, it's experienced corporately in the church because the church is the embassy of the new creation world here on earth. It's, it's heaven on earth when we gather together as a body to worship God. Jesus told Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You see how he ties the idea of building a church and then giving Peter the keys of, of what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is found on earth in the church. So we experience a, a taste of that coming kingdom as we experience life in the church. That's the already. But the not yet aspect of it, the not yet component, is when what Habakkuk prophesied becomes a reality. Habakkuk two fourteen For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're not there yet. We don't, we don't need um, somebody to come in and defend that proposition that we're not there yet. We just need to walk outside and uh, turn on the TV, read the news, check out Facebook. We just need to know the sin in our own hearts to know that this is not yet. And it's what we're praying for, though. And so that gets us to... The second question. The first question, what is the kingdom? Well, yes, we have this big picture view of the kingdom. It's all things God rules over all. But he especially rules over his people in Jesus Christ. It's that kingdom of redemption. And we, we pray that that kingdom would hasten and arrive. So what, what does it mean for us to pray, though, that it would come? I want to highlight three things for our consideration. We're going to start from the biggest, broadest aspects of, of that request 
and get to the most narrow and personal of petitions. So first, to pray your kingdom come means that we are praying for consummation, as we've just discussed, that, 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 that God would make all things new. That, that's at the most, uh, that's, you know, the zoomed out aspect of this request. In the biggest sense possible, that has to be what we're praying for. That God would wipe away all our tears. That sin and death would be no more. That we would live with him forever. To pray this petition with any sort of meaningfulness means that we need to recognize then that this world is not our home. It's really hard to pray your kingdom come when you are busy building your own kingdom here. Uh, when you're, you're busy um, getting comfortable in this life, in the things that this life offers. But we need to remember the Bible says we're, we're sojourners. We are exiles here. We're pilgrims on our way to something better and greater. And so we keep our eyes fixed on our true home when we pray this petition by faith. To pray this is a good corrective for us. It reminds us, no, there's something better out there for me, and I, and I want it, and I need it, so I pray for it. And we pray for it with the confidence that, in fact, it will come. We're not praying in the vain hopes that God would please, please, uh, uh, please choose to establish your reign and rule perfectly over all creation. No, no, no. Rather, we're asking him to do what he has already promised to do. In the coming of Christ to earth, God has given us the guarantee that the kingdom of God is at hand. We have seen the king. We have seen his glory, John says. It's not a fantasy. It's not fiction. This isn't something we're deluding ourselves about. The king really has arrived. And the early disciples are, are, telling, are, are telling their friends this. And I think it's, it's Andrew who, who scoffs and says, who is this king? And they say, he's Jesus from Nazareth. He's, Could anything good come out of Nazareth? And the reply is, come and see. No, he's really here. You just have to come and you just have to, to see it and, and believe it. We're not making it up. It's reality. And it's how the book of Acts opens up in chapter 1. Let's turn there. Acts chapter 1. So this is the very close of Jesus' earthly ministry before his ascension. Verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, how about that? He's speaking about the kingdom of God. Of course he's speaking about the kingdom of God. It's what he came for. It's what his resurrection secures. But clearly the disciples weren't paying very close attention to what he was teaching, what he was talking about, because then they asked, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is now is not the time for consummation. It's not the time for conclusion. Now's the time to get to work. 
Now's the time for witness. Now's the time to bring others in through gospel preaching, through holy living, through, through faithful witness bearing. Now's the time to bring others into this already aspect of the kingdom before the not yet comes. Because when the not yet arrives, it will be too late. When it's all consummation, when all things are made new, the day of salvation will pass and give way to the day of judgment. And the angels underscore this after Jesus ascends into heaven. Verse 11, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. You can believe it. It's really going to happen. The fact that you're seeing him go into heaven is proof that he will come again. And that's what we're praying for. But we pray for it with the confidence that it will happen. We need to believe that it will happen. The illustration that's often used to, to kind of describe where we are in terms of redemption history is the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. Right? So we have uh, D-Day back in June 6, 1944, right, when the Allies make their invasion on the beaches of Normandy. Against all odds, they take the beach, and they continue then to push on through France and the rest of German-occupied Europe. But it's not until nearly a year later, May 5, 1945, that, German, uh, that Germany finally surrenders unconditionally, and victory in Europe was announced, VE Day. Between those dates, June 6, 1944, May 5, 1945, there were many battles, countless lives lost, and yet all are agreed that once the Allies captured the beaches of Normandy, the, the war was won. It was over. And so too it is in the Christian life. What Christ did at the cross, and then subsequently the empty tomb, and then the ascension into heaven, he secured the victory. The war is won. And right now, Satan is waging battles nonetheless. Conflict is inevitable until we celebrate victory. Consummation when Christ returns. This is where we stand, friends. You need to know today that because of what Christ came and did, consummation is secured. The end will come. Victory is ours, even if we don't taste it at the moment. But that's what we're praying for. We're praying that we will soon experience it and, and, and taste it and enjoy it. Your kingdom come. But a question I think we need to ask ourselves when we pray it is, do we really want it? Do you really want the kingdom to come? If we understood that all our happiness resides in that kingdom, then we would most certainly want it and mean it when we prayed for it. But even the best Christian on, on some days secretly hopes the delay of this consummation. After all, there's so many things we want to do still. And some of them are really good things. Still want to watch my kids grow up uh, and get married. I want to play with my grandkids still. Um, I want to perhaps take my, my spouse on that dream vacation or secure that promotion at work. 
Or, or maybe I don't want the kingdom to come yet because there are friends and, and family and loved ones that don't yet know the Lord. I want him to tarry for their sake. We need to recognize, though, that the kingdom, just like its king, is all good and only good. We will never be disappointed when it comes. So we must set our aim for heaven. And as C.S. Lewis helpfully reminds us, that if we set our aim for heaven, we'll get earth thrown in. But if we aim for earth, we'll get neither. Isn't that what Jesus said, essentially, when he taught, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you? Brothers and sisters, that means that what we should want most in this world, what we should want most in this world is to see the arrival of the next. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for consummation. Until the kingdom is consummated, till the new heavens and the new earth, how can we experience more of God's kingdom? Well, scaling back from an entirely new cosmos, a new creation, we see, secondly, that we're actually praying for revival when we pray your kingdom come. So, so the big picture is, is all things made new. If we zoom in a little bit, get a little more narrow in our focus, well, we're praying for conversions. We're praying for the flourishing of the church, for revival. Heidelberg Catechism explains that your kingdom come means, in part, that God would preserve and increase his church. And the Westminster, which we already read, goes into more detail. I want to remind you what it says. It says, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan would be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. It means praying for for people like Cliff and Bree to go out. The, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. That's what we're praying for. Your kingdom come. That the church would be purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. That the, that the laws of the land would promote the good of the church to preach the gospel. That the ordinances of Christ would be purely dispensed. That means that, that there would be true preaching. Uh, that there would be a right administration of the sacraments. And that these things would be made effectual to the conversion of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted. That means, friends, you cannot pray your kingdom come in any sort of sincerity if you do not care about the church, if you don't care about organized religion, if you don't care about what we do here as a body, what it means to belong to the life of the church, to pray that prayer and not care about those things. That'd be an oxymoron. So when was the last time you prayed for revival? The Reformed sometimes get a bad rap for not caring about evangelism and missions. We're often, uh, uh, often you know, caricatured by the hyper-Calvinistic view that says, well, God will save people and he has the means to save people, so I don't need to do anything. Maybe on occasion it's been a fair criticism, but by far... Our church history has been rooted, our, our particular church history has been rooted in missions and evangelism. It's interesting, we always talk about the Reformation, but many people viewed, back in the day, viewed the Reformation as a revival. That's the way they spoke of it. T.M. Lindsay, a, a Scottish historian in the 1800s, wrote of the Reformation era that, quote, it was a genuine revival of religion. 
a fulfillment of the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon his waiting church. And we know that descending from this Reformation, we got the likes of men like uh, the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield uh, with their uh, you know, preaching during the Great Awakening, missionaries to uh, the Native Americans like David Brainerd or missionary to India, William Carey, and so many others. And so, friends, that means if we care about God's kingdom, we care about the lost. Are you grieved by the fact that there are countless millions out there, I mean, not just out there in a generic sense, in Kalamazoo, we could say, there are, there are countless thousands in your, in your neighborhood, down your street, hundreds who do not know the Lord. And if they were to die today, would perish in their sins. Does that bother you? The Puritan Richard Baxter, writing in the 1600s, showed how this petition, when rightly understood, enlarges our hearts for those who do not have the gospel. This is what he said. He said, I rarely looked beyond England in my prayers as not considering the state of the rest of the world. But now, as I better understand the case of the world and the method of the Lord's Prayer, I cannot be affected so much uh, by the calamities of the land of my nativity, as also by the case of the heathen, the Muslim, and the ignorant nations of the earth. It, we could put it this way, very simply. If you belong to God's kingdom, you will want other people to belong to it too. Because you know how wonderful the king is. And since we've established that the kingdom is primarily about the new work that Jesus does in our hearts, and we know that that work, according to Romans, comes through preaching. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And that's what we should be about as a church. Not about gimmicks. Not about the next the flashiest thing. Um, no, we should be about the single thing that God has guaranteed takes people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, and that's talking about Jesus and presenting Jesus and living like Jesus, making it all about him. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray that his word would go out faithfully in all the world and that many would hear and believe and bow the knee to King Jesus. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for consummation. We're praying for revival. But then first we need to say, Lord Begin with me. We're praying for sanctification, aren't we? It's where this prayer gets most personal and I think most difficult as well. As we look into our hearts, we pray that the Lord would change our hearts. We pray, Lord, dispel the sin, the darkness that still cling to me, and bring your kingdom to bear in my life. Why is that? So hard for us to pray. Well, it's difficult to pray because of the implications, right? It means that we're going to have to say no to things we'd rather say yes to, we like. It means we're going to have to say yes to things that perhaps we're not very interested in. It means doing the hard work of committing ourselves to Christ and taking up our cross to follow him. But Jesus never said that his kingdom would be easy to enter. In one place, he mentions that those who, who love money and success 
uh, there's an additional, an additional hurdle for them to get into the kingdom. It's with much difficulty that the rich will enter the kingdom of heaven, he says in Matthew 19. More generally, the ministry of Paul and Barnabas is summarized in Acts 14.22, saying that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue on in the faith, and saying that, here it is, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Those kinds of tribulations, I'm sure what they had in mind at that, that time were, were those that came from, from the people around them that hated Christianity. But tribulations don't only come from without, they also come from within. And sometimes those are the most trying of all, right? The sin in our own heart, our own filth, our own issues. And as you consider your own sin tonight, perhaps you're thinking that this is too big a prayer to ask that God would enter and take up his throne in your heart. You're too wicked. You're too vile. God, God wouldn't come near you in that manner. Maybe, zooming out again, you doubt that the church could ever flourish in a culture like ours today where everybody seems to hate us. Or maybe you're beginning to think, because you've been praying this prayer for years, decades, maybe your whole life, and you see so much evil in the world, so much violence, injustice, maybe you're starting to think a kingdom will never come. We need to remember that God builds his kingdom on impossibilities. You know what's impossible? Bringing a dead person to life. God proved he could do that on Easter. And he does in each and every one of our hearts when we believe on him. The things that are impossible to man are possible with God. What God promises in this kingdom is possible because he can make it so. That's why we don't pray, Lord, let me bring in your kingdom, which is often, I think, how we interpret this and try to apply it. What can we do to usher in the kingdom? How can we build the kingdom? This kind of language we use. How can we extend the kingdom? That's not the prayer. The focus is on the king. Your kingdom come. We despair of ourselves. We give all glory to God who is able And we say, your kingdom come, O God, in my heart, in your church, and yes, the whole world over. Let's pray. Almighty King, you have established your throne in the heavens. You rule over all. And Lord, you rule our hearts as well. We know that we are often stubborn and rebellious. We doubt times we can be prone to despair even of, of your plan. But you are the king who in Christ Jesus does all things well. So would we pray this prayer with all sincerity? Would we truly desire the hastening of this kingdom? That you would soon make all things new? And until then, Lord, would you flourish the ministries of the church over the whole wide world? And would you change us from the inside out that we would better reflect our king. Indeed, we would open up our hearts and ask you to enter in, to reside, and to rule over us. For Jesus' sake, amen.